Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I could talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is January 24th, 2017, and we have on Mike Bassett. Mike Bassett is just, as you would say, starred, uh, is one of the subjects in the new HBO documentary called Risky Drinking. And uh, I'm just going to bring him on. I got to meet him at uh, Alternatives. Let's do a little plug for Alternatives. Alternatives is a non-12-step, completely um, outpatient, moderation, uh, I would say, I hate calling it rehab. Maybe Mike can, if they're finding a new word for it. But it's treatment. It's real treatment. And both uh, Addy Jaffe and Dr. Curran are both PhDs. And that's a great program. So with that, we're going to bring on Mike all the way from St. Thomas. Hey there, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Monica. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? Good. good. How's the weather in uh, St. Thomas today? Oh, like 83 and breezy. It's always beautiful here. Really? Really? Nice. Make me want to come and visit there. Looks pretty good. Uh, the rain finally stopped here, which is kind of nice. I love the rain, but, you know, after a while you're like, Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's jump right in. I was really, really happy to meet you because I had seen the film. Um, honestly, it was pretty hard to watch, so I watched it in segments because I didn't, you know, you're so worried with all this stuff, with everybody promoting AA, where are they going to go with this for somebody like myself? And I had heard that they were going to finally promote moderation technique, right? So um, I watched it, and I watched you, and you know, everybody else in it. And um, but anyway, I thought, you know, for the whole takeaway in the in the long and overhaul look of Hollywood, that at least they brought to light um, the guy from the NIH talked about something different. And they do mention the naltrexone and the vivitrol. I think they mentioned it as vivitrol and stuff like that. So um, and then I went there. I didn't know I was going to get to meet you at the panel that um, Dr. Jaffe put on. So uh, it was really. You know, really nice meeting you, and nice to hear uh, a positive ending, which they didn't show in the film. But I'm really glad that you're that you're doing so well. I think that was the hardest thing for me watching the film. Um, there was nothing positive in it. 
you know, when I originally got involved with the film, it was going to show, you know, what was going on. It was then going to show treatment and then follow-ups. And there was no treatment, no follow-up depicted in the film. Wow. So you, they actually shot uh, stuff at, at alternatives, right? You want to talk about, can you just talk about a little bit how much they filmed there and, you know, what was shown, like what kind of treatment you got for people who don't know? Um, when I went out to alternatives, I think we filmed about the first week. Um, it was a very intensive outpatient program. You know, I had sessions with both, uh, Dr. Jaffe and Dr. Kern two to three times a day, uh, met with someone else on mindfulness, um, and also did a lot with, uh, neurofeedback, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I, I guess there's damage done to the frontal uh, frontal lobe from drinking and, you know, other traumas and stuff as you, you know, go through life, and they are able to correct and repair a lot of that. Yeah, could you tell us, because maybe some of the listeners, I know about it because um, I'm really familiar with their treatments, but would you tell the listeners, like, what it is, the neurobiofeedback, and how often you did it? Um, did it daily. It's something they, you know, initially do a complete brain scan so they know, you know, exactly what shape everything's in and can, you know, do a game plan on what they want to correct and how they're going to go about correcting it. And it was, I was skeptical at first, but, you know, I noticed a big difference after, you know, just several sessions doing it. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, what, was, what was the difference that you experienced, Mike? Oh, uh, just uh, a lot more relaxed, slept a lot better. Mm-hmm. It was just, I don't know, you know, a, a different state of calm, I guess. I, I don't know how to explain it. And, and until you actually go through it, it, it's hard to describe. Right, right. I've actually seen the brain scans of somebody um, before and after, and they were pretty significant. So from, I'll just talk about what I saw, was, and they explained to us that um, some of it is um, impulse, where all the impulses and, uh, oh, now I'm forgetting the other thing, but they're all that stuff in the frontal cortex of the brain that isn't just dealing with anything to do with alcohol, but has to do with things that, like, you make choices, like that kind of stuff, so impulse behavior, um, controls, like that kind of stuff, is uh, not as active as it is in a person who has no issues with saying no. Right? Like, so, um, right, there's two two things there, and I'm not awake enough. I'm drinking green tea here instead of coffee. <laughs> That's probably why. Oh, you got to have I'm caffeine gonna... first thing in the morning. you got to go with oh, that. Well, there's, there's caffeine in this green tea, but I'm just doing <laughs> a new diet. So, anyway, um, yeah, I really, uh, I, I'm really excited about, um, even though, um, well, anyway, I'm sorry that they depicted you that way, but, um, so they saw you, you go every day full-time like for the first week, correct there? Is that what happens? And then the second week? I think week it was the, the first, first three First three weeks were very intense, and then it, it touched down to a couple times a week um, after the first three weeks. Mm-hmm. And you don't live here, so where did you stay? They put me at a nice uh, 12-step-based sober living house. <laughs> You're kidding. No. Wow, where was that at? And, um, I'm not real familiar with that. There, I know it was pretty close to Venice. Mm-hmm. What was that like? At first, you know, they they forced me to AA meetings, and you know, every morning you want to read a book and go and 
after a few days, they were like, okay, we're, you know, not going to force you into that. And, you know, I kind of got to do my own thing. Oh, that's good. And, yeah. you know, I remember fighting to be able to use my telephone and my laptop. You know, normally they take it away and want to treat you like you're a 12-year-old. Yeah, so let's go there. Let's go back in time uh, to the first time that you went to a rehab and tell us why. Uh, when I was 14, I got caught smoking pot. And that's, uh, I think that was probably 81, 82, and that's when rehabs were just starting to get popular. Mm-hmm. And my parents, thinking they were doing what was best for me, sent me to a rehab. Wow, for pot. But that was like this, the Nancy Reagan period. That was like the just say no yes. to, oh, my God, that was an yep. insane time. And I, I think, I've heard other people, I think it's really horrible for a parent to send someone to a rehab for just pot. You know, it's really... Okay, so can you tell the audience what you told me when we first talked about what happened as a result of that that you were never exposed to before? Oh, when I, you know, went into rehab at that point, I I had drank a little and had smoked some pot. But then they would bring outside people in to conduct AA meetings. Well, as you'd hear them, you know, giving their story, I'd Mm -hmm. never heard of Vicodin, Percocets, Demerol, Dilaudid, I mean, so I was exposed to all kinds of things I didn't even know existed. And this was in Denver? No, this was in uh, Pittsburgh was the first one I went to. Oh, you're in Pittsburgh. Is that where you lived at the time? Yes. Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Okay, so you go to the rehab once. How long did you stay at this place? Oh, if I remember right, that first one I got kicked out because uh, you weren't allowed any contact with the outside world. And back then, most rehabs were in hospitals. You know, they were in a psychiatric wing of a hospital. Well, I found mm-hmm. an old mail chute and was able to get letters out. <laughs> and someone I sent the letter to, you know, dimed me out. I got kicked out. Wow, oh, that's funny. Oh, my God. Then I was and, sent to uh, yeah. Then I was sent to another one, St. Mary's in Minneapolis. And oh, that one, I think I left. Oh, within the first week or so. And I had uh, got a copy of a newspaper and saw Alvin Lee and 10 years after were playing at a bar. So <laughs> I went ahead and signed myself out to go see a concert. They did not let me back in. Well, that's, that's really funny. So you were a teenager here still? Yes, yes. St. Mary's, I believe that's one of the oldest AA places. Might be. Big stripper place. Well, so then what's the next place? And, and well, let's talk about cost, though. So, was it out of pocket for your parents? Yes. Mm-hmm. How much money? Do you remember? Oh, if I remember, I think it was you know twenty or thirty grand at the time. Oh my God. But you know they had money, and and, and in their mind they were doing what they thought was best for me. Uh huh. And the next place after that. Oh, I don't remember all the names of them. I know uh went to another one in Pittsburgh, went to one in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, when I was living in Florida, went to one there. How many and, did you go to? You know, a lot of them. Yeah, uh, seven total. Oh, and what was the model there? Like, what, at all the seven, what, what did you get? Did you get any? They were all 12 steps. Uh-huh. What is that? Entail with big book study groups and, you 
uh, big book study groups, reading the big book, uh, constant, you know, AA meetings. And, you know, back then, you usually you had, one, you know, one doctor on staff. Mm-hmm. And everyone else was basically 12-step volunteers. Really? Yeah. So, you know, they weren't, you know, really trained counselors. They were people that, you know, had been in the program. Mm-hmm. At what point in your life did you say this is this isn't working, and so I'm never going to go to a rehab again? Free oh, probably by the time I was, you know, mid twenties, I decided, you know, this isn't working, and you know, every time I would get out of a rehab, I, you know, they always wanted to do the ninety and ninety, and I was always very successful at finding the people in AA that were going to head back out and party. Well. What was the, would you say, how would you characterize your drinking looking back now? You know, if you're able to look back now, I'm sure, and see it more clearly now that you're not in AA or forced there and you're talking with sane people like Dr. Jaffe and Dr. Kern. What's um, your pattern? Looking back, there were times my drinking was real heavy. There were, you know, also periods of, you know, I'd go three, four years without anything to drink. Really? Yeah, I remember doing a little over three years, thinking I was a vegetarian and didn't drink and threw away all my rock music because maybe that contributed to it. I'm glad I outgrew that phase. (laughs) Sorry, because I did that too. That's really, they told me that I shouldn't listen. This is when I was new in AA. (laughs) This is after they like sucked me in. They were like, oh yeah, you shouldn't listen to like Led Zeppelin and, and Jethro Tull because you know, you're going to want to drink. So maybe listen to, and I was already like listening to jazz. Like I had switched to like, there was a great jazz station in Hawaii um, back in the 70s. And <laughs> that's too funny. <laughs> oh my God, they're so fucking crazy. Um, anyway. <laughs> so there was periods of you had complete absence on your own. And then what kind of led up, to, in, in the HBO, let's talk a little bit about the HBO documentary. Um, okay. Which we did talk about at, at that panel, which I thought was great about levels of what was risky, and they didn't really show any. Although those ladies who were drinking wine, you know, um, around the table, it was really pleasant to see, and that they were not going to go the road of um, abstinence, right? Uh, but anyway, um, you were drinking very heavily, right? Can you talk about right? Okay, no, let's go back. How did you get involved? Let's talk about that, how you found, how they found you or you found them to do the movie. Well, when I was in Denver, I, I was worked as a talk show host. And I was always very controversial. I was the one who was known for, I mean, I went to concerts, you know, five and six nights a week. I was out constantly partying. Yeah. And kind of goofing around one day, I looked up, I, I figured there's got to be a rehab you can drink at. Mm-hmm. And punched that into Google and sure enough, alternatives came up. Mm-hmm. Um, then, Praise Google. You know, called out there, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. spoke with uh, Adi Jaffe, and uh, started getting him on for interviews on the radio show. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Then uh, I retired and left the show and moved to the uh-huh. Virgin Islands. Right. And, you know, came down with a bunch of money. I was in full-blown party mode. And I uh-huh. kept getting emails from Dr. Jaffe, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to talk to rehab doctors. I'm having the time of my life down here. Uh-huh. 
finally I got a hold of him, and he said, you know, HBO's looking to do a documentary uh, about moderation, and, you know, it was something I was very interested in. And he put me in touch with the director, uh, spoke to her for a couple hours, pretty much blackout drunk at that point. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to her, and three days later, we started filming. Oh, my God. Who was the director? I didn't know this was the director. Ellen Gusenberg. Ellen Gusenberg? Gusenberg. Gusenberg. And she had just won an Academy Award last year for her previous documentary. Oh, okay. I'll look her up. She was a you know very well known, uh, accomplished director and right. Seemed like something I wanted to be a part of. Was it where did they film first? Uh, we started filming in St. Thomas. And um, so we'll back up. It it looked to me like you were kind of drinking, you know, kind of round the clock. Is that true at that point? Yeah, you know, at that point I wasn't working. I had mm-hmm. plenty of money. I had nothing else to do but drink. <laughs> um and and uh okay, so you start to do that and did you want to just talk about the film overall now at this point? Um in what regards? Well, I know that you felt you know, we weren't completely happy about what the end result because your stuff was um Cut out. I want. I just to talk about what was cut out because I think it's important if people watch the film that they know that you're okay and what happened. And it's it's not okay. in the movie, right? There's no control about that, right? I mean, I made a documentary. I had to cut things out and people out, and when I shortened it, right, they had to go from. It's only a one hour, right? I think it's under an hour. Well, this documentary is about an hour and a half. Oh, it is an hour and a half. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but with all four oh, yeah. subjects, they really didn't, you know, show any of the follow-up. Right. Which I don't know if that was a time constraint. If, you know, I don't know who made that, you know, creative decision on that. Mhm. Well, do you think they might do but, a, two, a part two, like a follow up, then? Because they did none of that I'm with anybody. I'm hoping they do something with the follow up. I know on the website they, you know, did a little "Where Are They Now" section where we were able to, you know, update them. And but you know, I don't know how many people jump to a website after they watch a documentary. I'd rather it be in the documentary. I look at, yeah, really, you know, but just just for my listeners, because actually I do have a lot of listeners. You know, there's like thousands of like a quarter of a million people for such a small little show that I do. But tell me, so is, do we go to HBO.com and then forward slash Risky Drinking, and there we'll see yes. like the behind the scenes? Okay, so listeners, yeah, or you can uh, you know just pull up HBO documentaries. I believe they have their own website as well. Okay, all right, so that would be good for anyone who wants to see the background. They could do that for you. Um, but, you know, yeah. now after going through alternatives, you know, I look at it more, you know, everybody wants to call it treatment or therapy. I look at it more, it's an education. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I gained a lot of knowledge and tools working with these doctors. And, you know, three years later, I still stay in touch with them several times a week. But that's why I wish they would have shown more in the documentary as far as treatment options, because it's mm-hmm. an education somebody's getting. Somebody might watch this film and, not think they have a problem or want to do anything about it today, but if you plant that seed, give them some knowledge, three, four years from now when they do have a problem, they're going to have knowledge of where they might want to go to seek, you know, seek help for it. Yeah, yeah, I certainly felt that they could have expounded on that a lot more too. Uh, but I, I do know how hard of a sell that is here now. I mean, I didn't know when I first started working on my film 
how entrenched Hollywood and AA is everywhere. But I do now, so I think it's as small of a step as, and I think it would be really hard if I were you, and I was in that movie. And I mean, I certainly when I was on Katie Couric, they, um, not on the show, but the pre the pre story of mine, made me look pretty grim, you know. And I was like not grim. <laughs> I was like still. I think I had been. I, I don't. I don't know if I was Austin well, anymore. But anyway, you know, like you know. It, yeah, good. AA, the big book, all that's 80 years old. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had cancer and you went in and saw your doctor and he said, well, I've got this archaic 80-year-old treatment or we can give you the best of what science has to offer to you today, wouldn't you go with the best, most current evidence-based science? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much out there, but you know, nobody, including a lot of the physicians, are even aware there's other treatments out there. They know what they learned briefly in medical school, and, you know, they send you right to A. So how do we change that? I mean, I certainly have my strategy in working on doing it, but how do you think we could get to the most important people the fastest? I'm hoping that, you know, the doctors start learning about this. Um, I know in California we talked about naltrexone. It's been out 22 years now Mm -hmm. since the uh, FDA approved it. Well, you know, how, how different would my life have been if when I was 28, my doctor prescribed me naltrexone? That could have changed my drinking and changed my life. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Um, on that note, did you go to meetings? Like, did you go to the free support meetings that are at Alternatives? And, by the way, if you're listening and you're in Los Angeles, I think they hold, like, five, at least five a week. And... Um, uh, did you go to smart recovery meetings and or moderation management meetings? Um, no, I did not go to an MM meeting. Um, and at the time, I, you know, when you get out there, uh, the first 30 days, you're abstinent. You know, it was, you know, I thought I was going, you know, going to show up out there and, you know, a D and Mark would be shaking cocktails for me, but it didn't happen that way. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. You get out there, and, you know, the first 30 days, you're abstinent. So I didn't go to the MM meetings because, you know, I was abstinent. I did go to some of the smart recovery meetings. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the smart meetings? I enjoyed them, but it just, I don't know. It, the person moderating those nights, it just everybody talked forever. I mean, just getting around on the introductions, we were an hour and a half into it as everybody did their introductions and told their whole story. So we never really got into the, you know, intended uh, content of the meeting. Oh, wow. So the moderator's not, like, pushing people along. Yeah, I've been to good meetings. No. And, I, you know, I've been to maybe one one bad meeting, but um, where they didn't, like, rein the person in and say, move on, moving it along, you know? you got to be a strong facilitator. That's too bad. You should probably tell them. Give them some feedback. And, you know, I don't know how they changed. I didn't, uh, you know, didn't get to attend one when I was out there. Was that a while ago? That A couple of years ago, or... Like yeah, that would have been, what, three? Because we filmed um, about three years ago. Oh, my goodness. Three years ago. That's a long time ago. Yeah. And, and so uh, I was under the impression we were going to film, and this would have been out in six months. I didn't know it was going to take close to three years. I wonder why it took so long. No it's idea. Kind of odd. Yeah, it's kind of odd. You know, all right, so you didn't you didn't go to that, you didn't, and um, was it easy for you? So, you know, it looked to me like you were, like, really slamming it, and we're talking clear, hard alcohol in the morning or when you got up. When you came and they told you um, uh, that, you know, okay, you're going to be absent, well, 
like, you know, did you get some kind of medication? Because let me tell you, Bill Wilson, when he quit, they didn't just do a cold turkey. They were given a hard, serious dose of belladonna and a couple of things, and they fell asleep for two days and then woke up. No, when I... When I stop, I just stop. I've, I've been lucky in that. I, I never get the DTs. I, I really have no problem stopping. And, and I know when I first got out there, Mark and Adi were both concerned because they're not a medical facility uh, for detox. Right. And they were concerned, what kind of trouble am I going to have detox? And I said, I don't usually have any trouble. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be a little you know, anxious and, and bored. I mean, drinking, you know, if you're doing nothing, passes a lot of time. Yeah. Well, what were some of the hobbies, like things that you had? Did you ever go back, and is that something that they deal with where you look at what were things that you loved to do, Uh, maybe things you did with your son? Um, We could talk about that that I would love to bring in and make sure we touch on that, that how things were with your your son. Well, the other, you know, when my son was down here at the time, he was just visiting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we'd go to the beach every day. We'd go out paddle boarding. We'd go uh, fly boarding, take out jet skis, whatever. And, you know, we're always doing something fun, even though I was drinking. I mean, those are all kind of drinking sports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that got included. It, it 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 made it look in the documentary like all I did was, you know, take my son to bars with me. Yeah, that was um, – but somehow, even though I didn't know the backstory, I didn't get the, like, horror feeling that you were a horrible dad. Uh, that so, you know – but I do see they didn't show the good stuff. But I, what I'm kind of am asking is there obviously or or did rehab like really shape you? And what, what were things that obviously you loved concerts? No, there are things. OK, so are you a musician like you were for a hobby? Like what were some of your hobbies growing up that as you have, you know, learned to not abuse alcohol or get, you know, drunk every day that you you know, that you do for, like, we all have things. I ride my bicycle, I like to work out, I swim laps, you know, two or three times a week. What are we, I sing karaoke. What are the things that you do with your time, right, that you don't need, I mean, of course you can have a drink or two or whatever you drink, right? I know you drink. But yeah, I do drink. What are the, some of the things and, and that you just so, and, You know, I know, you know, I did some uh, radio with HBO when I was out in New York City for the premiere, and you know, they didn't really like me talking about that I drink. But, no, I still drink. Um, there's days and periods that I don't drink at all. There's other times I'll, you know, moderate. And, you know, there's times here and there that, yeah, I drink way more than I intend to. Mm-hmm. Um, are you using the naltrexone? I have it. I use it occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, uh, we did that panel in, in uh, L.A., if that right. panel would have been something that uh, cocktails were available at, I would have probably taken the naltrexone. Mm-hmm. So it would have helped me control my drinking for that night. How does it make you feel? Like, what's it's the weird. Uh, you, you don't get the euphoric feeling out of the drinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've experimented it with plenty. I, I can remember nights drinking where I'm having a hard time walking. But you don't you you don't have that euphoric feeling in your brain, and it was it's it's weird. Wow, and, it's weird. Know, I drink for that. I like that euphoric feeling. Yeah, I think that was what. Well, you know, I like the buzz. I don't like going past it, but I like the buzz. But um, I, that's what and, I had heard. You know, I talked with Dr. Kern about that a lot. Um, under the moderation, World Health Organization would have me drink no more than sixteen drinks a week. I take more of a harm reduction approach. I you know, two or three drinks, well, I enjoy the buzz of, you know, five or six drinks. 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit strict. I mean, when I first I went to moderation management just to see what it was like, and I think that that's why it's not grown as much as it could. Um, if it were more, and that's why you know Ken Anderson developed Ham's harm reduction, because uh, and I think there's a splinter group in New York that I almost met with. I think it's a little too restrictive. Like I fit in that and I fit under that, but I do think that it's a little too restrictive. I just do. And you're creating, it's sort of the American version. Like in, in Europe, um, you know, people drink, uh, have, I could say they could drink daily. It's no big deal. People have a glass of wine with their lunch It's no, or a beer and go back to work. No one's looked at, oh, you're an alcoholic. It was funny when Claudia said drinking alone. I was like, that's not true. I mean, I, oh, I had this image it's of It's cheaper like, to drink alone. Well, I don't need to treat all my friends to drinks. Well, let's talk about the real sociality of all of That's not even a word, but like you're walking through an airport or I'm alone traveling to the airport and it's lunchtime and I want to have a big, big, beautiful salad and I want to have a glass of wine. I'm alone. Oh, and I'm an alcoholic now? No. Um, you go through Europe, all of the cafes, when I was in, in London or in Paris or in Cannes, they're all drinking a glass of wine or a beer with, uh, with lunch. And in the evening, you know, everybody's having something unless they're in AA or they're a Muslim or, they're, they, you know, or they don't like it. But I think that in America... I mean, I think I even said that once to my son when I was still brainwashed from AA, you know, about the drinking alone thing. And that doesn't make, even if you were to sit at home and light the fire and I'm going to turn on Shameless or watch a movie and I decide it's the weekend, I went, really? I don't think so. And, um, but uh, it's, so it's that kind of the mentality that we have here, Mike, you know, it needs to change. And, I'm happy well, for you. Well, I mean, social stigma in the states is way different than Europe. I mean, it's even different, you know, where I live. I mean, down here, alcohol's, you know, ingrained in every part of society. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I, I, the HBO movie said four drinks is binge drinking. How much people come in happy hour? They'll have four <laughs> or five binge. beers, four or five that shots. Not, right, that's not binge drinking. That's no. what they four, four drinks are not binge drinking. I mean, I would be. I mean, to me, binge drinking is, you know, wow. knocking down a liter or something and, you know, one of those crazy epic nights. It was never, four drinks wasn't a binge. That's really true. It's so true. You know, I don't know. It's really. So, how many. Well, the shows that you did, you're, you did talk shows on camera, talk shows as well as radio? What was the name of your show? Can we find stuff on about you? On, as far as. You, you can know, where find you me on uh, YouTube. Uh, I used to, uh, for the TV show, you know, I had to create mm-hmm. a, a segment I wanted to do, so I did Man versus Beer. I used to go to all the, uh, the brew pubs in uh, Denver and sample beer at all the different pubs. Wow. Okay, I'm going to look it up. How long did you do this for? Oh, did TV for about three years out there and then was on the, the talk show for 13 years. And then prior to that, I've done FM radio all my life. Yeah, you have a great voice. Yeah, you were a DJ? Yes. Rock and roll DJ? And, and, you know, so a lot of partying and and concerts and all that, you know, came from that. It was, you know, definitely a a partying type of job. Yeah, I would imagine. Although a lot of people in that world have gotten sober, and I say it in quotation marks, you know, and joined AA. Um, Did you find that as as the years rolled by? 
and Miss yes, Reagan. Yeah, you know, it, it they, definitely changed. Yeah, so talk. You know, talk about it, like the the culture. Well, radio over the you know last fifteen or twenty years got real corporate. I mean, you had I was working for Clear Channel, mm-hmm. and you know it got corporate. You had suits everywhere, and it, it was never like that when I first got into radio. And when I first got in, it was partying. I mean, that's it was fun, and radio's changed a lot. Yeah, it's hard. To, there are stations though in Denver. The one thing I noticed when I was traveling making the film that um, when I would go to a town, right, each city, whether it was Cleveland or Denver, that you had more local stations, that there still were DJs in those booths and talking to you and spinning records, uh, that in L.A. we only have, well, we have some college, but we don't have, well, I guess there's some, but you know what I mean? Like they don't have as much of a flavor as I found Denver. Um, I found like a job. Well, a lot of it now is voice track, so you've got, you know, a DJ at a bigger station doing, you know, five smaller stations somewhere else. You don't have as many live shows as you, you know, used to. Right, right. Yeah, I remember when Clear You know, it's usually morning ball. drive and afternoon drive are going to be live. Everything else is, you know, voice track. Mm. Oh, really? And, you know, for me, now that Spotify and things like that are out, I have no use to listen to radio. I'd rather listen to exactly what I want to listen to. You know, whether it be a podcast or the specific music, I don't want someone else making those decisions for me. I don't, you know, I mean, I like that too, especially if I'm going to like bike, you know, down the beach or something, and I put my, you know, iPod or some in my head and listen to my own music. But Kevin and I found this station W O L D in New Jersey, <laughs> and because we have Sonos, and you can like click on, uh, you know what I mean? You go to uh, not Pandora even, but you have with your Sonos, you can pick radio, and then you can say what country even and I can listen to any radio station anyway so we find this station in Jersey and that we listen to where there's these DJs and they have and they pick and they have commercials man it's just fun it's like throwback throwback weekend we listen to <laughs> uh, touch in New Jersey or something do you know that station yeah it's kind I'm of actually fun. writing it down I'll check it out later on W-O-L-D W and I think it's as old as I mean you know I was born in 57 so my memories of like Casey Kasem, and then you had um, the guy uh, Wolfman Jack, and uh, laying on the beach like in Rockaway with your little, you know, transistor radio. Uh, those DJs were just—they were so a part of the culture. You know what I mean? It was really, anyway, nostalgic, so nostalgic. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about what you. You know, right now, so you live in St. Thomas, and HBO makes this film, but they really don't show the success of you. Or we can we talk about some of the other subjects, how they're doing? Um, the ones I know about, I know uh, Kenzie, the first one. From what I read about her, I guess she's doing well. She, you know, basically said when they filmed her, it was a bad, you know. She was, what, 22, 23, a period in her time. She was just drinking heavy. Yeah. And I guess all that's changed. She's engaged. Mm-hmm. And appears to be doing very well. Uh, there's a gentleman in the film, Neil. Um, yeah. You see him going through what looks like a rough detox. Mm-hmm. And from talking with his friends, he you know hasn't drank in almost a year. Uh, does not go to 12-step. But, mm-hmm. you know whatever way he's found for himself, he's been sober almost a year. 
Wow. Wow, that's great. You would think he's going to be dead like the next day or something. He was so, it, you know, I mean, I was You know, watching this, it almost it reminded me, you know, when I was a kid, seeing Scared Straight. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean the movie? You feel kind of that way? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't that bad, but you were in it, so I'm going to respect your feelings about it. You know, totally get you that what you're saying. I hate that. Oh, stuff. I don't even like watching myself on screen with this. I mean, they, you know, there were a lot of other interviews that were conducted when I was not that drunk and had not been sitting at a bar for four hours drinking. And for whatever reason, those hit the cutting room floor. Wow. Okay, so Neil is doing okay. He's a year actually abstinent, but he didn't. He's not doing twelve step. Woohoo! You're not. You're doing naltrexone. The young woman in the beginning is doing fine. She drinks and she's normalized, right? If we could say that. Um, yes. And then. And I'm kind of doing a hybrid of all of them. I'm doing some naltrexone, some harm reduction, some moderation. But that was the unique thing with alternatives as far as the rehab goes. You know, everywhere else I went. They're going to put you into their program and give you the outcome they want to give you and fit into that little 12-step box. The first thing Mark and Adia asked me when I got out there, what's going to make me happy? Where mm-hmm. do I see myself? How, you know, do I still want to be drinking? Do I want to be smoking some pot? Um, you know, I go down here in the British Virgin Islands, mushrooms are legal. And we go over to a full moon party every month and eat mm-hmm. mushrooms. You know, so they helped me, you know, and educated me to get exactly what I want. My quality of life is what I want. And, you know, I think that's important. If you go to a rehab and it makes sense to you, not something somebody's telling you to do, but, you know, somebody's giving you exactly what you want, you're going to be happier and it's going to be something you're going to be able to stick to. Wow. You know what? This is really interesting. For a company as huge as HBO, I found your... I'm going to post this on my pages because I promoted it on my... I have a, pr- a group called Deprogramming from AA and any 12-step group. And um, anyway, I found the link, but they don't even have, like, videos of you guys. Like, it's just like writing. It's just like yeah. writing how, where they are now. Like, are you kidding? You don't have a camera who you could you just light each one and just talk to them, even if you did it on Skype? Oh, we did a bunch of Skype follow-ups. There's a cameraman that lives on island here and did follow-ups with him. And, you know, for whatever reason, that's not in there. Well, well, well. And they had us all in New York. I mean, they had us, you know, at HBO's theater for a premiere. When was that premiere? You know, so they could have got us all on camera for whatever updates. That's right, right. Just even standing outside. That was in December, right, that you premiered? Yes, Listen to yeah. this. So on the bottom it says, HBO, what message would you like to share with the viewers? Rhonda says, I know there are messages from doctors like, if you have more than two, drink as a woman, two drinks as a woman and three as a man, you are a binge drinker. Or if you look forward to a drink, then you might have a problem. Oh, my God. That is like so, because somebody looks forward to having a drink. And maybe those who aren't digging a little deeper as to why you're drinking, but I don't think there's a blanket answer to what is a problem and what is not, and that's what the film's mission was, to show that it's not black and white. Well, you know, it's two two drinks for, I mean, I uh, wow. It's a little, uh, you know, well, we keep plunging away, I mean, uh, plugging away here, you know, with the... Well, you know, 
I look forward to drinks, but the thing they worked on with me at Alternatives was drinking for the right reason. Not drinking because mm-hmm. I'm upset. Not drinking because my wife's a bitch. Not drink, you know, but right. drinking because it, I'm going to have fun. Drinking because it's hot out. And I'm going to enjoy that cold beer. It's going to taste good. Yeah. So you know, with trying that, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You Can know, you talk about the wife that they cognitive yeah, behavioral therapy? No, no. Go ahead. Sorry. So we did a lot of CBT out there, and you know, it, it's changing basically the triggers, and you know drinking for the right reason. And I find out if I go out and drink, I'm a lot happier if I'm drinking for the right reason. I'm not drinking because mm-hmm. I'm pissed off. I'm not drinking because I'm going through a break. I'm drinking because I'm happy. Right. I enjoy yeah, drinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, would you explain to um, maybe the audience, um, I know what cognitive behavioral therapy is now, but what are, what are some of the, maybe something key that, you you learned with them that kind of really shifted you. Is there something you could? You know, just uh, looking at things differently. Um, you know, my wife would come home and yell at me about something. It's kind of changing your response to that. You know, my normal response would be either yell back or go have a drink. Mm-hmm. And you know, trying to look at it different. Okay, maybe she had a bad day, but I'm not letting that affect me. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty complex process, but they made it very simple the way they did, you know, Dr. Kern did it out at Alternatives. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. And, you know, I wish they would educate doctors. I mean, how many of us have gone into the doctor? You know, you're in for a physical or whatever. Like, do you smoke? Do you drink? Okay, how much do you drink? Who tells the doctor the truth? You tell the doctor what you really drink. They tell you you're an alcoholic. You need meetings. Yeah, that's that's a that's a bad one. Like my neighbor, <clears throat> he's a doctor. He's a general practitioner in um, has a really thriving business and been a practicing doctor for over thirty years. And he saw my film and he was shocked. And he knew about naltrexone, but he said. You know, Monica, like you should speak to groups of doctors. Like he said, we're all we're told to go to, you know, go to an AA meeting, and if somebody has a problem, they were told by the AMA or their whatever wherever they studied, to, um, you know, send people to AA. Who set this up, and who is still like saying that's part of the curriculum? Those are AA members who got into, you know, it's not like there was an outsider who told. No, no, there was a doctor. Who became an, you know, a big-time AA member, who then got involved with the American Medical Association, just like we had with prisons and courts and with the pilots and the nurses. That's been going on since the 70s. So you know, it's like, if mm. D. Jaffe and Dr. Kern, you know, or myself and Claudia could speak on panels uh, in front of writers, you know, so that writers maybe could tell a different narrative for TV shows and you know, and feature films. And to talk in front of doctors and journalists, you know, it's just a uh, Well, the other thing, you know, I've spoken with a D about, what if they had some kind of college curriculum that these kids in college are going to be at least exposed, uh, you know, briefly to moderation and harm reduction and some other things. And as they mm-hmm. go on with their careers, whether they get into medical school or whatever, it might be something they pursue. Yeah, that's a good idea. Really good idea. You know, but right now everything's, you know, 12-step based and, you know, the hard thing, too, if, you know, somebody does have a problem, wants to seek help, well, everyone around you is going to say, yeah, you have a drinking problem, you need help. 
but when you try to tell them, I'm going somewhere that's going to teach me to drink in moderation, or I'm going to do some kind of harm reduction and still drink, you don't have anybody supporting you. Yeah, that's true. That part is And many really times when somebody gets to that point, they need rehab. It's not them paying. It's going to be the family or friends or someone else paying and making the decisions for you. Well, does that help? Pardon me? I said, does that help if somebody's always doing that? I mean, you know firsthand. No, it doesn't. Right. Right. So I think there's an education with craft, which is for friends and family. Um, I certainly learned about it um, through the Center for Motivation and Change out of New York is training a lot of people, and they have videos that are on their website. There's like 15-minute videos. Smart Recovery has a booklet um, for friends and family that's excellent. And now I think there's a new generation of young people that are becoming PhDs to work with people with addiction and mental health issues that are trained. If they're trained with, uh, um, I think it's Andrew Tatarski, who's been at it a long time, and Jeff Foote um, at the other, the Center for Motivation and Change, uh, they both have their own, like, center where everyone's being trained, trained, I'm sorry, trained in harm reduction and asking them, like, meeting the client where they're at, sort of the language, you know, meeting somebody where they're at and asking them, what do you want to do? And um, I do think that, um, even at alternatives, that it would, I mean, we're going to get there or somewhere, it was a clinic where people come and you just offer them naltrexone and Vivitrol right away, along with cognitive, so that someone doesn't have to do abstinence unless they want to. But because so I've seen people who couldn't actually stop, right? They were not. That that's the big failure in AA, that they were not able to stop for 30 days. And you know, Claudia talked about it. That you know, so you, and I interviewed a guy. This was drinking like 24 bottles of beer a day. So you get up in the morning and you do your thing, but when you're going to have that drink one hour before, you take the naltrexone. And within a month, he was down to six beers. And Claudia shared with you know her story. I read her book. Um, if any of our listeners are listening now, Claudia Christian um, has a movie, One Little Pill, that she made about her use of the Sinclair Method, which is the use of naltrexone. And... Um, and her book, Babylon Confidential, which is a great read. And, you know, I learned from these other people and interviewing them and talking to them and getting to know them that that's how they did it. And that's also another way, you know, which I think th- that um, Adi is and Alternatives is now offering the Sinclair Method, correct? Aren't yep. they, is that something that yes. I should probably interview them again so they could talk about that because they weren't doing that. Uh, do you think... That it's important. And, you know, the big thing that really helped me with them, you know, yeah. any other um, rehab treatment, whatever you want to call it, and that I went through, if I went out and drank, it was treated as a failure. Mm-hmm. You know, they sent me, you know, I came back to the Virgin Islands, they sent me a thing called a sober link. It's a GPS mm-hmm. breathalyzer. And mm-hmm. I would blow it, you know, three, four times a day. And, you know, a D would encourage me to take it out when I went drinking so he could monitor my progress. Well, if I screw mm. up and have way too much to drink, they didn't yell at me the next day. He, you know, hey, what was going on? Let's make today better. So wow. it wasn't you failed and got to start all over. It's you know, what went on last night? Why did you drink so much? And let's make today better. So I never felt like I was, you know, getting beat up and sent back to square one. Very good. And also not like, a, you know, what's wrong with you and, and create more hiding, create more binge drinking if you do the other, right, with the shaming. 
and all that. Right. So you're learning. And a lot of it's, um, you know, cost-benefit analysis. Like when I flew Mm -hmm. out to L.A., I could have got trashed on the plane, but that wasn't going to serve me right for, you know, what I was trying to do. So, you know, they put a lot more, you know, thinking and everything else in. And they empower me and, you know, make, make sure I know that I'm in control of it. Where AA always taught me that I'm not in control. If I have a drink, you know, one drink leads to a thousand or whatever. You know, and <laughs> right, it right. Didn't. With all this, uh, do you have some kind of blog? Do you have a blog? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, with all, so because the filming happened so long ago, like three years ago, have you been able to? Other people come to you and said, "Gee, I'd like to try that." Have you been able to help? steer somebody else towards alternatives or towards the way that you're doing with uh, using naltrexone and doing moderation? I've steered, uh, had a doctor down here who knew nothing about naltrexone. Um, she spoke with Dr. Jaffe. He told her all about it. She prescribes it for a lot of people now. Mm, that's great. And, you know, that's the big thing. It's education and education of these doctors. And, you know, a lot of doctors, if they don't know about it, you know, how are they going to, you know, jump behind something support that they don't know about? Yeah. And, you know, I know Claudia and Dr. Jaffe were telling us stories out there of how hard it is for people to go to their, you know, general practitioner and ask for an Altrexone. Yeah, why is that? But I can walk in and say my ankle hurts and I'm, I'm sad. They're going to, you know, they have no problem writing scripts for all that stuff. <laughs> but if I want something that's going to help me quit drinking, oh, we don't know enough about it. Uh, no. Mm, Little meeting. That's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. Yeah, it's got to be changed. It's a big job, and though. You, you know, I remember reading something in the big book a long time ago, something about science. You know, basically, you know, hey, this is the best thing we have so far until science or whatever can come up with something better. Well, science yeah, has it, come up with better things, but it's not being embraced by that many people. You know, you yes, think the 12 steppers would be happy that science and evidence-based treatment has come as far as it has and, you know, for some of those treatments. I know. That is such a – I was – after I left AA, it was like 2011, and then one of the women that are that's in the movie invited me to come be a speaker. She was asked to speak, and I had already left, and she said, you're going to be the opening 10-minute speaker. And um, so I, I drove all the way out. This guy, God knows where, and it was like an hour drive. And uh, – it was like this little hole in the wall in what, like a little strip mall. And I walk in, and I felt like I was like just in another world. So I get, I'm sitting there, and they're reading the literature, and they're reading from Chapter 3, more about alcoholism. And then it says, um, science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. And I heard it for the first time like, oh, my fucking God. You know, like, that is such bullshit. So I get up at the podium, and I start talking like me. Like, and I'm like, no, that's not true. I said, that is not true. Like, there is science now. There's medications, and there's things that people can do, you know, besides them. They're smart. And they they start yelling out at me. I felt like I was, like, you know, at a club doing stand-up, and I have, like, hecklers or something. And I said, and they're like, what are you doing at an AA meeting then? You know, and I said, well, so, but if you use your their language on them, and I said, well, if you truly cared, if you, and that's so true that if an AA, they were educated, opened up their minds enough that when someone's been in and out and slipping and fucking wanting to kill themselves after 30 years, and they can never get more than 30 days, if they pull them aside lovingly, 
right? Instead of shaming them and saying, you know, you haven't done this, this, this. And they just said, you know, there's these other programs. It looks to me like AIDS is not a good fit, and maybe you should try smart recovery or moderation management. And did you know about Nitrexone or Vivitrol or Camprol, <laughs> right? So I just, you know, anyway, it was really fun. I got a real good kick out of that. But yeah, that's that line in there. to say sober with AA was a program that was successful. But if you went out and had a drink, it was you that fucked up. Because you didn't call your sponsor. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You know, so you had all the failure was on you, but anything positive, you don't even get the credit for it. It's the program that worked for you. And I think that was crap. Yeah. You know, yeah. why well, not empower somebody that if they're doing well, reward? They, they did good. You know, um, you know, it's harm reduction. If you cut down from a fifth to a half a fifth, good, that's still a success. And then right. when your your brain gets clear from just drinking that half a fifth, maybe you're going to want to cut down more and get more things in line. But that's not the approach that most people take, and you know it's a shame. And you know a lot of the AAers I know they're not happy people. They don't seem to have the quality of life that I think they could have. Yeah, I think so. I think that um, one of the things that I did notice in my last few years was that people with a lot of time were really cranky and they were got either nutty or, you know, if they didn't get into therapy, they sure needed it. And if they didn't do that, they needed medication now because they were so depressed, you know, still talking about their character defects and always self-flagellating, right? But that the younger people, um, say someone with just a few years or newcomers, um, were so much saner. And they are, many of the women, like they would, I remember this one woman, like she would run you over to, to get that parking spot. And there was a place in Culver. Like there was like the whole street was empty. You know, I mean, there was like all these spots in this one place where the meeting was. And I was like, good Lord, woman. Like, just like such a bitch. And, you know, that they were um, the frowns. It's like that that thing it's a look in the eye and in the middle of the the furrow between the eyebrows and the eyeballs there's this frowning that begins to happen on the face of a sober AA member that we made this joke with my family that you can see them coming you know so here's the stepper you know it's not all of them I mean some of them you know can go get some Botox or whatever but you know I mean on the overall the, the, I mean, I go swimming laps, and I see someone, I'm like, oh, my God, this person is a stepper, and for, I find out from another swimmer they are. But, you know, they're they're an interesting lot. Let's put it that way. Look, I, 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 Well, and I had a hard time are, with it. You know, I'd go to meetings. These weren't the people I would choose to hang out with, and I'm supposed to show up there and act like I'm happy to see all of them. No, these aren't the people I wanted to be hanging out with. And, you know, AA wanted me to change. Those meetings were my new social cir- circle. I was to hang out with people that were in the program. And, you know, that's not the way I wanted to live my life. Yeah, I think that's a real problem. you know, my program might, you know, what I'm doing now, and I'm using program for lack of a better word, but it might not be for everybody. And I really don't care if anyone else is happy with it. I'm happy with it. That's all that matters to me. Yeah, I liked what you said at the panel. You, You know, talked about that, that now, you know, the way that you're doing it, you feel very confident in how you drink and how you moderate and what you do with your life. And you have to go to people or a sponsor to get, oh, I'm okay now. Oh, this is okay now. I'm all, I'm all right because you validate that I'm all right. Well, who the fuck are you? Yeah, I don't need anybody to validate it. I'm happy. My quality of life is happy, and that's what matters to me. Right. 
Right. You know, maybe it's selfish doing it that way, but I'm selfish then. You know, that's, no, you know, no, no. that was why I went to alternatives. I wanted a better quality of life. I wanted to, you know, gain that control of my drinking and my partying back and was able to do that. Did you do the long program or the short program that they have? I would assume it's the long one because I'm still talking with them now every week, three, uh, three years later. Oh, okay. You know, I think there's one that's like a month and one that's three months or something like that. I, I, and, you know, that made a big difference, too, because, uh, you know, I, I became friends with Mark and Adi, and, you know, there's an accountability there. You know, knowing I have to talk with them, knowing I've got to blow the sober link, you know, there's an accountability, and that helps me make better choices. You know, because I don't want to let them down. Interesting. How long you know, have you so been that, for? Real helpful. Yeah. Pardon me? Well, you've been friends with them now for three years, right? It's three years yeah. you've been friends and with I them. And I still blow the sober link. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. And, you know, if I miss blowing it, Dr. Jaffe knows why I'm not blowing it. He, you know, <laughs> they see right through it. You know, I was like, oh, it's dead. Uh, I lost the <laughs> charging cable. And, you know, I'd go to the mailbox three days later. They sent me a new charging cable. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, Mike, I want to wrap nice it up. It's nice having somebody supportive because normally in, you know, most people who have been through a 12 step, if you screw up, you don't have someone who's still supportive to you. They, you know, shame you and make you feel like crap that you went out and had a drink or, you, you know, you smoked some pot rather than, you know, telling me, okay, make tomorrow different, you know. Yeah, you know, a, you really, really your chip and start all over again. Yeah, that part's and, horrible. You know, the other thing, I can't, you know, get up and say, hey, I'm Mike, I'm an alcoholic, and keep reinforcing with something negative every fucking time I speak at a meeting. Uh, I couldn't do that. Why, why would you keep reinforcing that negative? Mm-hmm. I think that people. Where's that? Hey, Mike. You lose me? Do you hear that? Oh, there's something in the background that was just really got really loud. Um, okay. So, well, I want to thank you, Mike. Uh, we're talking well, to Mike. Well, thank Bassett, you for Sure, it's a, he's the subject in the new docu- HBO documentary, Risky Drinking, uh, that you can watch online or HBO Go, and you can see um, where everybody is now today on the HBO documentaries. And I will be talking again. I'm really glad we got to catch up, and, uh, and we'll have you on another time. Get, keep us in touch with I what goes on. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. All right. All right, have a good day. Enjoy St. Thomas. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.